All right, let's do this. Let's turn to Acts chapter 13. There might be just a tad slight echo. If you might recall, we had some chairs up here, but as we've moved into our summer months and people are in and out, uh, we also had a wedding last night, and as I was telling someone earlier, they just didn't seem to want the red chairs clashing with their white candles. I couldn't figure it out, but they wanted them removed, so we removed them. It was a wonderful, wonderful wedding, and uh, Lord willing, uh, it will be used in the future as well. So we've removed them, so there might be just a little bit. We'll, so give us some time as we work that out a little bit. Uh, but here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to look at Acts 13. And if you right recall, we're now wrapping up. This chapter has been a monster of a chapter. And it started with a, uh, an arrival. of the, It's the first missionary journey. Remember, we're breaking the final frontier of the gospel. We're going to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul and Barnabas had been called and set apart by the Spirit, the church, discovered while the Spirit worked that these men were called and to be separated and sent out uh, as ministers of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so they move and they go on their first missionary journey. And we recall that they went to Cyprus and we said that Paul was suffering for Jesus because Cyprus in the Mediterranean was like what? The Hawaiian Islands to us. Great weather, always the same, beautiful scenery. They went through preaching in there. Remember, nothing was recorded until they got to the end when they got to a man named what? Son of Jesus. Remember? Now, Luke's always intentional. He's got a plot line. He's got a storyline. He has, as he's inspired by God, a theological agenda. Remember, the scriptures are not just lining up historical events just to give you historical events. These are interpreted events. Real history, divinely interpreted for a specific intent for you and me, okay? That's why it's been collected. So what we have here now is that they've met, they left this isle, they've gone up into the, the Turkish area, modern-day Turkey, and we know that at this point some odd things happened. When they got here, John Mark left. And they didn't stay long here. They went north to where they went into higher elevated regions, now, if you read Acts along with Galatians, the book of Galatians, you'll see that something happened to Paul in here somewhere in this time. And so many, many think that he, he contracted some form of malaria that did something to his eyes. And in order to go into the higher elevations to seek some relievement, okay? Sounds good. It's not mentioned here. We just know that it's happened. Something's happened. Now, while he's up here, he preaches one of the greatest sermons in all of the book of Acts. And remember what he does. He unfolds the Old Testament. Remember, he's, he's a visitor. But his visitation is known by everyone, and they ask him to preach. And as he stands up to preach, he goes through the whole Old Testament, and somehow he shows that the whole Old Testament has a very large shadow cast on it. And it's the resurrection of the Son of God. So the resurrection stands in the center of everything. It stands in the center of the scriptures. And what the resurrection did is it showed that everything that came before in the Old Testament was a, an advanced echo, a sneak preview of what the resurrection is the center of everything. So we can say this, brothers and sisters, about reading our scripture. If you take the resurrection out of your Bible and read the Old Testament you will misread and misapply your Old Testament every time. 
Because in Jesus' exegesis, in Paul's exegesis, the resurrection stands and its shadow is cast and it actually reconfigures and fills in and interprets all that came before. Okay, so there we are. So here we are. We're at the next Sunday. The next Sunday, remember when they heard this, it said that literally people were begging for more. They couldn't get enough. They began to hear the light and the glory of the righteousness of another. They began to hear the joy of justification from another. It was such good news that they literally were begging them as they're leaving, please tell us more. It's amazing what a week can do. Amazing. So we'll get to our text. Here's how I'm going to begin. Two, week, two months ago, my wife and I have had such a busy life, I haven't even asked permission if I could use this, sweetie. Can I do, use this now? Thank you. Two months ago, my wife and I had one of those defining moments in our marriage. You know what I mean? One of those aha moments, one of those come to Jesus moments. You know what I'm talking about? You could call it a marital adjustment, but it was much bigger than that. It was a, it was, do you know what it was over? Of course you don't. I'll tell you. Was it over bad patterns of not loving each other well? No. Was it over feelings of neglect and loneliness, not cherishing and serving and taking care of the other? No. Was it over lack of tenderness and communication and and lack of understanding and lack of being sensitive to roles and responsibilities as husband and wife? No. Was it over lack of spiritual leadership in the family? Lack of attention to the means of grace to the family? No. Well, was it over bitterness or anger or jealousy or discord? No. What was it over? Family worship. Not the neglect of it, but the practice of it. Let me explain. The conversation went something like this. Honey, it feels like there is a pressure from you to do family worship. Like you have to do it. And the kids feel it too. Now my mouth went dry. My stomach flinched. And instantly I knew it was true. Conversation continued. It went like this. Do you feel like, honey, that you, you have to do family worship in order to be a good dad, in order to be a good spiritual leader? Translation? Here's the translation. Are you doing family worship out of a heart seeking to justify your existence in being a good dad? Are you doing family worship out of a heart that's seeking to be somebody? That's seeking to not be a bum. That's seeking to be okay by being a good spiritual leader. Even the roly-poly that was scooting along the bottom of our wall stopped and looked up. I mean, it was dead silence in the whole room. Quiet everywhere. Here's my point. My point is this. Do you want to live by your own righteousness? Brothers and sisters, you know what the shocking, the stunning, the unbelievable answer is to the Bible-believing, 
highly respected church-going religious people in Acts 13 is? Yes. I want to live by my own righteousness. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Just so we know that this passage is here to change that. This passage is here to actually move us to not live on our own righteousness, but to actually live on the righteousness of another. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Acts 13, 44, down through 52. So we're going to finish this chapter. Now the next Sabbath, this is after that tremendous sermon. This is after the the begging for more. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. But... When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Now that is a very ironic statement. Because the people he's talking to did not judge themselves unworthy. They judged themselves worthy. Paul's flipping it around on them, okay? Uh, They were, where are we? Thank you. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was not, it was necessary the word of God be spoken to you since you thrust it aside. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. 47, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but what I want to say about that verse right there, because that's a mouthful, isn't it? What we need to hear here is, whenever salvation begins, however you want to think about it, grace wins. Whenever salvation happens, however it begins, it begins with grace, it continues with grace, and it ends with grace. And what this is highlighting is that what Jesus has done has made sure that everything is grace. It's all grace. It's so much so that that the text wants to say even those that were appointed, grace believed. Okay? Okay, now, verse 49, And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. Again, we should get the picture of the original creation command. It's being fruitful and multiplying. The glory of the knowledge of the Lord is covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. It's like the first time the original creation mandate is finally being fulfilled by the second Adam, not the first, okay? Now, they shook off the dust. Oh, well, we got to go back. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men in the city. What this is telling us is, do not ever think you're above being deceived into trusting in your own righteousness. Because these devout women were. High standing and leading men of the city were. Okay? Uh, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your spirit wrote the word, inspired the word preserved and protected the word, the word of power, the word of glory, the word from another world, Lord, the word that breaks into our lives even now. 
And so we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would fill us, help us to hear, help us to receive the glory and grace found in this passage. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want you to notice three things about the aha moment that I just told you about earlier. There's three things about this coming to Jesus moment. I want you to notice three important observations. Number one, I was doing a good thing, family worship, with a bad heart. I was doing a good thing with a bad heart. I was craving my fundamental life, my fundamental comfort, my fundamental happiness, my fundamental sense of self, my fundamental sense of approval and acceptance. I was craving it in something other than God. I was craving it in being a good dad. Being a spiritual leader. This leads to the second thing to notice. I was doing a good thing without any real connection to Jesus. Now, I would never, ever tell you, and if I did, it's time for me to go. But I would never, ever tell you doctrinally, theologically, with my lips, sign a document in my ordination, I would never, ever say that all things aren't connected to Jesus. Never. But that's the point, isn't it? Our hearts believe more than what our mouths may confess. Our hearts actually trust in things and hope in things and rejoice in things and rest in things and enjoy things and delight in things and and love things. Many things that we would never say we believe with our mouth. I mean, Jesus tells us so, doesn't he? He says, look, your, your hearts are far from me. You honor me with your lips. You got the right doctrines. You made your ordination vows. You can affirm this confession, but your hearts are far from me. And then he says, in vain do you worship me. Second, third thing is to notice is this. There's many of us, we're concerned about the law of God. We're concerned about biblical obligations to obey God's law here this morning. All of us should be, okay? In other words, we are concerned about sanctification and we're concerned about real life change. We're concerned about real repentance of turning away from things unto the Lord Jesus. We're concerned about real growth and grace in our marriages and our the way we shepherd our children, the way we relate to each other, and the way we interact with each other, and all of those things. What I want you to see, the third observation is this. In, leading, in the leading of family worship, I was breaking the first commandment. Do you see that? And in breaking the first commandment, I broke all the rest. I was not really loving my family. I was loving myself. Do you see that? In leading out of the desire to find my fundamental identity and self in being a good dad and in being a spiritual leader, I had another God-savior than the true God-savior. 
And the first commandment says, you shall have no other God, saviors, but me. So brothers and sisters, it's like this. My foundational comfort and happiness and life and identity, when it's not found in the true God, Savior, you're breaking the first commandment. We could say it positively. When you trust in the glory and grace of Christ, when you rest in what He's done and He's done alone, when you trust and delight and see in real slices of life and experience His true acceptance of you and His real declaration that you're approved and loved by God, when that works itself in, in real slices of life like leading family worship, when that works itself in and pushes itself in and relating to one another and, and the motivational drives of your heart and the way you do things, you're keeping the first commandment. And you're on your way, though imperfectly, to truly being able to keep any of the others. Okay? So I guess what I'm saying is this, is that you need to be careful in your zeal to obey God's law. You're not breaking the first commandment while you're doing it. Here's a, here's a quick check. All right? If we're going to check. All right, am I? While I'm going after my zeal to obey God's law... Am I breaking the first commandment? Here's the first check. The first check is this. If you think that you can keep God's law while ignoring or disregarding your heart motivational drives or the reason why you're doing it, if you think you can ignore that stuff and just, quote, live up here and just keep the Sabbath, not commit adultery, not bear false witness, the warning light should be going on that you're already being driven by another God's Savior. Okay? Now I'm going to hide behind the skirt of Tim Keller. You ready? He has two other tests. Here's his other two tests. If you are judgmental and condemning, if you're quick to give criticism and unwilling to take it, you're being driven by another God's Savior regardless of how right you think you are. So I'm hiding behind him. If you believe you have pleased God by the quality of your devotion and your moral goodness and thus naturally feel that you and your group deserve deference and power over others, you're being driven by another God's Savior, he says. So the question is again, do we, do you want to live by your own righteousness? Now what we just did is this. We just took a big x-ray machine and brought it up here into the worship hall. And we x-rayed this text. Now, in x-raying this text, what it did is it shows you what's on the inside of this text. So what I want you to do now is see, let's look, based on this x-ray machine, let's see if we can see a little more on the inside of this text. I want you to look at the first thing. Do you see the inside of the religious leader's motivations? Can you spot their functional God-Savior in this passage? I want you to look at verse 45. Let's see if we can find it. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying. Okay, the key word there is jealous, isn't it? Here's, what's the motivational drive of the Pharisees? Well, we see that they're jealous. Well, why are they jealous? Why are they jealous? If we find why they're jealous, we're going to find what they are building their life around. 
We're going to find what they are building their identity around. We're going to find what they put their hope and their trust in. Because that is being threatened by someone else, so they're jealous of them. Okay? Now, what we find in the text, I think the hint is, it's probably human approval and acclaim, because of verse 45, what's the key word there? When they saw the crowds. In other words, their synagogue had never been packed out like it is right now. And it's packed out because of Paul. And they're jealous. All right, the other thing I want you to see, we got the x-ray on the text again. We're looking behind the text. We're not just looking at the surface, we're looking behind the text. I want you to see the second thing. Do you see the double entendre in the text? You English literature people, you grammar people, you people that correct my grammar and the words that I make up, do you see it? I want to get you so bad. Do you see the double entendre in this text? I got you, don't I? I'm so glad. The double entendre is the word jealousy. The word jealous is a double entendre. You know what that means? One word, two meanings. The first meaning is jealous. And that's the one that's translated here. But if you take the original word in the Greek, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Luke had in his possession and the apostles had in their possession, the word that was used for jealous is also used for, all the time in the Greek Septuagint, zealous. Zealous for the law. Translation. They were zealous to keep their spiritual performance with the Mosaic Covenant because the summary of the Mosaic Covenant was if you do this stuff, you'll stay in the land. So do you see the picture? On the outside, on the outside, they're zealous. On the inside, double entendre, they're zealous because they're jealous. Their identity is wrapped around. Their salvation is wrapped around. Who they are is wrapped around. Their life and comfort is wrapped around their spiritual performance, leveraging God and others to themselves. Do you see that? Okay. Now, the third thing I want you to see is this. Do you see that the Bible-believing leaders are contradicting and reviling Paul? Look at verse 45. But when they saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and he began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, what was Paul doing? Well, Paul Paul was preaching sheer grace. Remember, we just had that sermon. You can look in that sermon in verse 38 and 39, and you'll see the summary of it. When he finally gets to it, he says, look, let it be known to you. After he just preached that the resurrection is the center of everything, that there is only one righteous man in all of history. One. And because he was righteous, he was exalted, he was raised from the dead, he's given the kingdom. He has the, the spirit and the things of the world to come. And that's why the Holy Spirit was unleashed in Acts, because the king took his throne. He was resurrected. He was the obedient one. And because of that, it means grace. Verse 37, 30, or 38. You're forgiven. Sins are forgiven. 
And then it goes in and it talks about justification, being freed from. The literal translation is you're justified. It means that it's by sheer grace that you're, you're accepted by God. It's by sheer grace that you're loved by Him. It's by sheer grace that He approves of you. He has His favor on you. He accepts you and you have peace with Him. It's by sheer grace that He's putting your life back together again. And that in your deepest and most fundamental comforts and happiness, it's met in communion with God. It's all sheer grace. It's sheer grace because it's based on the spiritual performance of another who is obedient and righteous and holy and covenantally loyal all the way even unto death. And and God said, I raise him up. And the religious leaders contradicted that. They reviled that. Do you see that? Okay. Here's the final point. Do you see that the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the lovers of pleasure, the bedhoppers, the bikers, the Zeus worshipers, the lovers of money, the career addicts, they enter into heaven before the church going respectable religious leaders? Look at verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. We're turning to the sinners. For the Lord our God commanded us, saying, This is all the way back in the Old Testament. It's not a new idea. That's Luke's point. Look, this is Paul's quoting what the Old Testament had always talked about. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Notice how the Gentiles respond. Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Do you see the incredible contrast? You have one set of folks reviling. You have one set of folks rejoicing. One set of folks are like, this is the greatest news I've ever heard. The other set of folks are saying, this is the worst news I've ever heard. In fact, you're getting in the way of what we need and what we want. Do you see the contrast? Okay. Do you want to live by your own righteousness? Let's apply it, shall we? As if that was an application. Are you ready? Here we go. One of my favorite westerns is the outlaw Josie Wales. Anybody like that movie? There you go. Hoorah. All right. The Civil War ends in outlaw Josie Wales. Peace has come. Now, when the Civil War ends and peace has come, the Confederate Army is given pardon and amnesty. They lay down their guns and they're free to go. There's no unlawful vengeance. There's no taking revenge out on them. That's the way it was supposed to be. Well, in this one particular unit, there was some renegade northern troops that wanted to unlawfully unleash vengeance on the Confederate soldiers. And that's the plot of the story, isn't it? Because the plot of the story is that there's one unit, and it was Josie Wales' unit, that they were tricked into leaving themselves in a defenseless position, and then it turned into a mass murder of slaughter as they started gunning down all these Confederate soldiers. Well, Josie Wales escapes, and he becomes the outlaw Josie Wales, 
because they need to cover up this incredible heinous injustice that they just did. So they got to pursue the last person that can point them out. And so begins the rest of the movie. The movie begins. The outlaw Josie Wales, the law, going for the outlaw. Every time the law comes after him, he conquers, he triumphs. And at the end of the movie, what you have is all the bad guys are laying in various positions in the street. In broken bars and windows. And he's in the middle of the street. And you think the movie's over, and another regiment, another group of men come in to hunt him down. And as he's in the middle of the street, he's shot, he's worn, but he's ready to go if he has to go again. And this ragtag group comes up and faces him in the middle of the street, and what do they say? Yeah, you're the outlaw Josie Wales. Right? Silence. Hands start flexing by their guns. Right? And we're all ready. He's going to let them have it again, and we're going to cheer again. But then one guy that you see knew him way back at the beginning, and he knew that what had happened was an unjust thing to him. And what did he say? That's not Josie Wales. And as he says it, he looks down at his boot because he hears this, and blood's dripping on Josie Wales' boot from a gunshot wound. And he turns to Josie Wales, and he says what? When you see him, will you tell him one thing for me? Tell him the war's over. It's over. Brothers and sisters, the war is over. You don't need to defend yourself anymore. You don't need to justify yourself anymore. You can put down your guns. You can put down your God's saviors. You can put down your spiritual performance. You can put down your craving for human approval. You can put down all the feeble and small attempts to make yourself okay, to make yourself somebody, to mean and to matter. The war is over because there's one who has defended you. There's one who now stands between the unrighteous and the ungodly, and he gives you his righteousness, his integrity. You're accepted by God, loved by God, esteemed by God, not in your own righteousness, only in the righteousness of another. And so what this does is that I've got to speak to some of you, because some of you, you know that you came in here, you know that you're either a, a conscious skeptic of Christianity, or you know that you're a, an investigative skeptic of Christianity. You want to learn more. You're, you're here because you, you're intrigued, or you're here because someone brought you, and you don't want to be here. But what I need to say to you is this, is that if you are not a Christian this morning, the war is not over. You don't have God's acceptance. 
If you're trusting in your own righteousness this morning, you're not accepted by God. You don't have his favor. There is no peace with God. And even though you may not, this may not register what I'm saying to you. It may not be self-conscious in the front of what you're thinking, but all your effort in life right now is to try to fill that void of not being accepted by God and not being loved by God and not having peace with God. And if we don't have that, because that's what you were made for, you're now running around trying to justify yourself and be accepted and approved of yourself and to find out who you are and find foundational comfort in life in anything and everything. Good things, bad things, doesn't matter. Uh, uh, A spouse loving you, then I'm okay. Boys giving you attention because of the way you look, then I'm okay. Certain financial portfolios, a career success, okay, I'm all right. I'm not a bum. Good things like helping people across the street, doing social work. Christians, when you don't live in real slices of life, I mean in a real slice of life like leading your family in worship, and you are not resting in, relying upon, and rejoicing in the acceptance and the love and the righteousness of another when you are not doing that. The sun in your soul is setting. And when you're not doing that, you functionally go out and try to find other God's saviors to get it. And you break the first commandment, honestly, truly, regardless of what you confess with your mouth. It goes like this. I think Habakkuk, everybody know who Habakkuk is? He's a real old guy, and he wrote a book in the Bible. And he was really perplexed because he had listed all the sins that Israel was committing. He was really upset about it. He was bringing it before God, and he was saying, how long is this going to happen How long are you going to tolerate this? And God says, not long at all. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. And he goes, no, you can't do that. I'm going to send the Babylonians in, and they'll get justice. And he's like, don't do that. And in the midst of that, while God lists the sins that Habakkuk missed, this one statement in the middle of all this chaos and blood and smelly smoke and war The righteous shall live by faith. Now you can imagine Paul living his whole life as the most meticulous Pharisee that might have ever lived on this planet. And can you imagine when he read that? And you know what he did? He put it in the first chapter of the greatest letter in the history of the world, the book of Romans. The righteous, by faith, shall live. Keller put it this way. He said, you know, I had to come to grips in the middle of my ministry. He had to come to grips with this. He said, the righteous, I had to realize that if I seek righteousness, acceptance, God's love, by my preaching and my teaching and how well I do, I will die every Sunday. So Christian, it's very, very practical. 
It's practical, and yes, if you've trusted in Jesus and you trust in the righteousness of another, you are right with God. You are accepted with God. You, it says in the text, that those who are justified are glorified. No one falls out. The text is real clear. Justified, glorified. You're in. But now as you live in real life, if it's not leaning and resting and rejoicing in the righteousness of another, another God's Savior comes in to define you and give you acceptance and give you approval. And when that happens, it kills you. You die. In your soul. So here we are. Do you want to live by your own righteousness? None of us do. Lord willing, none of us do. So we live by the righteousness of another, and we live. Amen.